Thank you, Marty. Fellow students, if you could turn to Acts 10, Acts 10, we're going to try and get through the chapter today. You've all heard of the phrase, famous last words, famous last words. Famous last words generally refer to the, the very last words somebody says before they depart this life into death, through death. Anyway, generally last words uh, can be lasting words, although sometimes what people say you think, really? Uh, Sir Winston Churchill's last words before he slipped into a coma and died nine years later with, he said, I'm bored with it all. Hmm. Harriet Tubman, who's going to, I think, appear on our uh, $20 bill, the back of our front of our $20 bill, uh, surrounded by her family on her deathbed, she said, swing low, sweet chariot. Yeah. It sounded like Churchill was looking back on what he was leaving, and Harriet Tubman was looking forward to what she was going to. Acts 1.8 records the very last words of Jesus that he spoke on earth before his ascension. He'd already died for our sins, conquered death through resurrection. Now he's ready to go back to his throne in heaven. And in Acts 1.8, we have recorded the very last words that he spoke on earth before his ascension. And he said, basically, he gave his followers a command. And that command applies to us today, Acts 1.8. He said, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you. And you shall be my witnesses both in Jerusalem and in all Judea and in Samaria and even to the remotest part of the earth. Now we've seen the first part of Acts, we've seen the beginning stages of that command fulfilled. The first part of Acts, as you recall, Acts 2 records the coming of the Holy Spirit, the spread of the gospel to the Jews in Jerusalem. So we see the gospel in Jerusalem. As a matter of fact, the Sanhedrin accused Peter and the apostles of literally covering up the city with the gospel. As a matter of fact, there's probably 20,000 believers in a city of 60,000 people. God, however, has a broader plan, and so God, to facilitate his broader plan, allows something that none of you and I would even understand, right? He allows persecution because he has a bigger agenda. God allows persecution to drive the Jewish Christians out of Jerusalem into Judea and Samaria so they can fulfill the next part of the command at that point, and they do carry the gospel to the surrounding areas of Judea and Samaria, just as Christ commanded. Rob's going to show you a map. You're going to go north of Jerusalem a few miles, and you're going to see the city of Samaria. Philip the Apostle, <clears throat> not Philip the Apostle, the evangelist, along with Stephen, has a very, very successful ministry in Samaria. Peter and John go to Samaria. Peter and John travel through Judea. Last week we talked about them healing Aeneas up in, uh, up in uh, Lydda and going to Joppa on the coast, raising Tabitha from the dead. And many, many Jews follow Jesus as a result. So the disciples, in fact, have taken the gospel from the town of Jerusalem to Judea and Samaria. But God's purpose, however, is much, much broader than that. His purpose is worldwide. Here's the problem. Ever since Adam and Eve sinned, mankind has been divorced from God. Man has been at war with God. That's a pretty good picture of where we unregenerate man is. God's plan has always been to reconcile man with God. God's plan has always been to make peace between humans and God. And God's strategy in the Old Testament was to pick one people group and use them as his point of contact to reach the rest of the human race. And we've talked in the past about how Israel is strategically positioned on the land bridge between Africa to the south, Asia to the east, and Europe to the north. Anytime you want to go to one of those three continents, you have to go through the Via Maris, the way of the sea, which runs right through Israel. 
So God's Old Testament strategy was to take one nation, one people group, and bring the world to them. Correct? Now we have a different strategy. It's not come and see. The strategy now is you, 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 go and tell. Go and tell, right? But the come and see strategy was then, and God instituted that in Genesis 12. In Genesis 12, God promised Abraham in verse 2, Abraham, I will make you a great nation, and I will bless you so you can be a selfish little pig and wallow in it. Is that what it said? No. It said, I will bless you so that you can be a blessing, verse 3, and in you all the families of the earth shall be blessed. So Abraham's descendants, the Jews, were to be God's point of contact for the entire lost world. They were called to represent God on earth, to accurately portray his character, and to be the go-between between God and lost people. God blessed the Jews in order to be a blessing, and this is true for us as well. We, how many of you have been blessed? I know some of you are in pain. The pain is a blessing. I can't believe I just said that. But it's true. It's true. Nothing happens to you that doesn't cross your father's desk, and your father loves you. So God blesses us so we can share his blessing with others. It's like comparing, if you look at the map Rob has up there, it's like comparing the Sea of Galilee with the Dead Sea. Now the Jordan River starts up north and it flows into the Sea of Galilee. So the Sea of Galilee receives fresh water from the Jordan River and the Sea of Galilee also shares its fresh water down south, correct? It enters from the north, 13 miles later it goes down south to the Dead Sea. Fish, a lot of fish live in the Sea of Galilee. It's a very live lake, it supports life. On the other hand, the Dead Sea is selfish. The Dead Sea only takes. The Dead Sea gives nothing. It hoards all the blessings for itself, and as a result, the fresh water evaporates. It becomes so salty and so mineral-laden, you can float in there, because we did that a couple years ago, and no life can live there. There's no fish in the Dead Sea. It's, I mean, there may be some microalgae uh, and things like that, but by and large, it doesn't support life. Here's the principle. When you hoard God's blessing. When, I didn't put it on screen, this is extra. When you hoard God's blessing, your life doesn't flourish. Your life begins to die from spiritual obesity. When you hoard God's blessing, you become spiritually overweight because you're not sharing and you're not exercising and your life does not produce life, it begins to die. The problem for the Jews was that they believed that God's blessing on them made them superior to everyone else and they by and large failed to share the blessing of God with the world. Now, John 3.16 tells us that God so loved the world, the whole world, that he gave his only begotten Son. God wants to redeem the Gentiles as well as the Jews. Historically, the problem was that the Jews and the Gentiles despised each other. I mean, they wouldn't even walk on each other's turf if they didn't have to. It was very much a religious and spiritual prejudice that resulted in separation, not unification. And the problem was on both sides. The Jews thought the Gentiles were unclean, and the Gentiles thought the Jews were just nuts. I mean, they just scorned them, right? So God's plan here is he wants to save the entire world, and he's going to take the Jews and the Gentiles, he's going to unify them into one family. That's the message of this chapter. It's like parents who adopt a child, right? This child remains an only child in the family for a number of years. And the parent decides years later, I'm going to adopt another child. The first child goes, I was here first. I am superior. I got mom and dad dialed, butt out, right? 
That was the Jews' attitude toward the Gentiles. It was really, really, really brutal. But God belongs to us, not you. Very easy for us to have that same attitude. Very, very easy. So God the Father wants the Jews and the Gentiles to be reconciled with each other into his family. And more importantly, he wants them to be reconciled to God. And of course, he already made that possible through Jesus Christ. He tells us in Ephesians 2, if you're looking for a cross check, Paul writes, in Christ Jesus, you, that's us, who formerly were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So we were once, we Gentiles and Jews, were not part of God's family and he's adopted us into his family. He himself is our peace who has made both groups, Jews and Gentiles, into one. And he broke down the barrier of the dividing wall. You need to understand when you go into the temple, when you went into the temple, it doesn't exist now, there was severe stages of closeness to God. The Holy of Holies was the high priest once a year. The holy place were the priests. Then you had the court of the priests. Then you had the court of the Israelites. Then you had the court of the women. Then you had the court of the Gentiles. Well, the Gentiles only could get so close to God. And if you were a Gentile and you crossed the wall from the court of the Gentiles to the court of the Jews, that was a capital offense. They would kill you immediately, right? So there was a dividing wall between you Gentiles can only so come so close to God because we have the inside track. And it's very, very easy to become self-righteous over this, but the reality is, folks, you and I can do that as well. Today, because we're on the inside, right? We are Christians. We're reasonably nice people. You forget what kind of schmucks you were before God drug you out of the mud, right? <laughs> I still is one. He still is in the process of washing the mud off Brad and washing the mud out of my heart, and I keep producing this stuff. The blood of Jesus Christ keeps on cleansing because Brad Hannah keeps on sinning. It's amazing. Yeah, somebody said amen, I know. <laughs> Must have been a family member, right? Who knows? Yes. <laughs> Ephesians 3 gives us God's picture. He says, to be specific, that the Gentiles are fellow heirs and fellow members of the body and fellow partakers of the promise in Jesus through the gospel. So God wants to reach the whole world with his, with his offer of reconciliation. The means of that reconciliation, of course, is the blood of Jesus Christ that pays the debt for our sin. The method of communicating that reconciliation is you and me. God's family. See, God has one family, not two families. There's no longer Jew versus Gentile. There's one family in Christ, and that's God's goal. Now, when the church was born at Pentecost, Acts 2, the first 12 chapters of Acts really focus on the ministry of Peter. The apostle Peter really is the key individual. In Matthew, God promised Peter, I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. That's not the papacy. It basically, Peter is the one who was chosen by God to unlock the door to the next stage of the gospel. Goes from Jerusalem to Judea to Samaria to the world. Each one of those phases required movement on the part of the church and Peter was the one to do that. In this chapter, we're gonna see God adopting the very first Gentile household into the church. The very first one. This is a very big deal and God went to a lot of work to prepare a specific Jew named Peter and a specific Gentile named Cornelius to make this work. 
for the message of reconciliation between God and man to be successfully transmitted, God has to have a messenger and a receiver, right? God is preparing the messenger Peter and the receiver Cornelius. And God is going to arrange their meeting in his perfect time. Even today, God is preparing people's hearts to hear the gospel all around you. He's also preparing messengers to carry that gospel. When God arranges for a prepared messenger to meet a prepared receiver, we call that a divine appointment. You ever had one of those? When you were awake? That happened and you were awake? I mean, I've had lots of them and I missed them, right? But when you're awake, you go, wow, that must have been a God thing. Yeah, it was a God thing because only the Holy Spirit can arrange that to happen, right? So God is preparing in this chapter Peter and Cornelius to meet each other in a perfectly timed strategy that God has for the gospel to get transmitted from one to the other. Luke records this three times in the book of Acts. That's how important it is. Here's the key idea of today's. All around me, God is preparing people to receive his good news. Key question, am I prepared to be his messenger? All around me, God is preparing people. If this week, God has people in your world who he's been working on, in some cases for years, to prepare their hearts to receive the gospel or to receive a word of encouragement or a word of admonition or a word of whatever. The question is, are you prepared to carry that message from God? Verse 1, chapter 12. Now, there was a certain man at Caesarea named Cornelius, a centurion of what was called the Italian cohort. If you look at the map Rob has on the screen, and you go to the Mediterranean coast and you go way up the coast, you'll see about 65 miles northeast of Jerusalem, 30 miles north of Joppa, that's modern day Jaffa, you'll see Caesarea. Caesarea was the provincial capital of Judea at this point in time. It was a military garrison. It was originally called Strato's Tower. Herod the Great had built a major seaport there. When we were there two years ago, or a year and a half ago, we found out that the Romans had perfected a technique of curing cement underwater. The Romans you know, had perfected a technique of curing cement. So they built this, Herod built a massive seaport because they could finally cure cement underwater and build these breakwaters out there. It was absolutely amazing. And he, it's named Caesarea in honor of Augustus Caesar, right? At that point in time. So Cornelius, very common name back then. He was a Roman centurion who commanded the 100 soldiers. Now, that today is the equivalent of a United States Army captain. An Army captain has about 100 soldiers under command, so a centurion or a century would have a, 100 soldiers under their command. And this centurion commanded the 100 soldiers, and that was underneath a cohort. A cohort was six centuries, 600 soldiers. So you have a centurion commands 100 soldiers, a tribune commanded 600 soldiers or six cohorts, and today that's about a lieutenant colonel. A lieutenant colonel in the U.S. Army would have about six to 800 troops under their command. Cornelius's cohort, this group of about 600 troops, is from Italian, from Italy. It's probably from Rome, I would guess, at that point in time. And uh, a Roman legion was 10 cohorts, 6,000 troops at that point in time. Today that would be a some level of, of a general in the U.S. Army. Interestingly enough, every time you read about Roman centurions in the Gospels, they are presented very favorably. Very, very favorably. There's never an instance in the Gospels where a centurion is viewed in an unfavorable context as recorded. Luke especially records a number of cases very favorably. So the Holy Spirit in, in chapter 12, verse 2, describes Cornelius. Now this is the Holy Spirit describing this man. This is really remarkable. 
Holy Spirit says Cornelius was a devout man, one who feared God with all his household, gave many alms, that's gifts, right, to the Jewish people and prayed to God continually. That is a remarkable description by God himself of someone's life, especially someone outside the household of faith. This guy's not saved, but boy, he's a God-fearer. So here's the principle. Cornelius was a God-chaser. What am I chasing? I know some of you don't chase anything. Man, you're on the couch. Got a remote. Man, I'm chasing channels, right? None of you do that. None of you do that. I mean, you're, you're worker bees. I get it. But... We're all chasing something. We're all seeking something. We're all pursuing something. What are you chasing? When you look at God's description of this guy, this guy is clearly a God chaser. His character is described as devout. That means devoted. He's God-fearing. He's generous. He's prayer-filled. He was giving money to the Jewish people, even though he was an invasive force, right? They were an occupying force. He placed the Jews, by the way, <clears throat> had three categories for Gentiles. The Jews had three categories for Gentiles. One was just a generic Gentile, a generic Gentile. Baked potato, no cream, no onions, no chives, no sour, just baked potato. I mean, you know, generic Gentile, right? That was category one. You guys didn't even get the baked potato, did you? Somebody got it? Okay. More coffee, more coffee, right? Okay, I shouldn't use starches as illustrations because you all have an aversion to starches. I'll be talking about fruits next. Okay, so you have generic Gentiles. Second category of Gentiles were Gentiles who worshipped the God of Israel, followed the Old Testament scriptures, right? They fasted, they attended synagogue, but they had not yet been circumcised. So they literally obeyed the Mosaic law, but they hadn't gone the whole route and gotten circumcised at that point in time. And they were called God-fearing Gentiles. This was Cornelius. He was a God-fearing Gentile. The third category was full Jewish proselytes who had been circumcised, and they were called proselytes of righteousness. Now, at this point in time, <clears throat> Cornelius had looked at his culture and said, the God of Israel must be the one true God. The scriptures of the Old Testament must be true. So he was following the scriptures. He was obeying the Mosaic law. He was attending synagogue to the extent that they would let him. But he hadn't yet been circumcised at that point in time. He was a prayer warrior. It said he prayed to God continually, which is very convicting for Brad. But it says he was not yet saved, right? God is going to remedy that very, very, very shortly. See, Cornelius was obeying the light that he had. So God was going to give him more light. The principle is that God always responds to a seeking heart. Jeremiah 29 says, If with all your heart you truly seek me, you will surely find me. Thus says our God. So God chooses, God's choosing Cornelius, and Cornelius is responding, both at the same time, right? Verse 3, as an illustration of his behavior, it says about the ninth hour of the day, he clearly saw in a vision an angel of God who had just come into him and said to him, Cornelius. Now the ninth hour of the day is what time? 3 p.m., because we always start the Jewish calendar at 6 a.m. in the morning, Jewish uh, day, 6 o'clock in the morning. There were three times of prayer for the Jews, 9 a.m., 12 noon for the really pious, and 3 p.m. in the afternoon. 9 a.m. was the morning sacrifice, 3 p.m. was the evening sacrifice. So most Jews sacrificed, I mean, most Jews prayed twice a day. He was praying at 3 p.m. in the afternoon. And when he was praying to God, God responded to him by sending a messenger to him. 
It's interesting that God communicates with clarity. It says he saw clearly, right, and authority. Interesting. <clears throat> the number one goal of a speaker is to get the listener's attention. Having a supernatural being call your name. You think he got his attention? I think he was paying attention. He was clearly terrified. It would terrify you and I too as well because verse 4 says, and fixing his gaze on him and being much alarmed, Cornelius said, what is it, Lord? And he said to him, the angel said, your prayers and alms have ascended as a memorial before God. Here's the principle. When you obey the truth, you already know. I guess I should just stop right there. How many of you are obeying the truth you already know? Okay, I love you guys, you're honest, right? When you obey the truth you already know, God will give you more, right? I have come to the Lord on numbers of occasions, said, Lord, da-da-da-da-da-da-da, can you give me, can you show me, can you? And the Lord says, I, you haven't turned the flashlight on I gave you now, why should I give you a floodlight, right? Turn the flashlight you have on, obey what you know and I'll give you more. Cornelius says, essentially, what is it, sir? And the angel tells Cornelius something that is very, we know this, but we forget it. The angel says, God has been watching your life. Wow. Even more shocking. God has been watching your life, and God is pleased with your life. Now, it's interesting, as a non-Jew, Cornelius was never allowed into the temple to give sacrifices, but God says, your prayers and your generosity and your devotion to me have ascended like the smoke of a sacrifice, and I'm very, very pleased with your life. You know, it's interesting, as a kid, I grew up, this would be completely foreign to me because I always thought God only was interested in whacking me. You know, he was only interested in beating on me when I screwed up. I really didn't have any idea as a young person that God actually could be pleased. You would be amazed at the times that you bring a smile to God's face. I mean, in a very, very wonderful way. I believe that God takes pleasure in his children. You take pleasure in your children? Do your, do your children bring you pleasure? Yes, I know you want to send them to Jesus sometimes, but, right? <laughs> I love them so much, Lord, you can mess with them, right? I'm tired, right, right? God takes great pleasure in his children. He takes great pleasure. He delights in you. He sees you through the sun, through his blood of his son. But it's interesting that God is always watching everybody and God doesn't have ADD. I mean, he focuses. The, oh, there's an old hymn that says, For his eye is on the sparrow. And I what? And I know he's watching me, right? If you're obeying God, by the way, it's great comfort that he watches you. When you're disobeying God, you hope he's taking a nap. But the truth of it is, when you disobey God is when you really hope he's watching you. He's the shepherd. He doesn't want you running off a cliff or something, right? So God is very pleased that Cornelius is obeying the knowledge that he already has, right? Cornelius knows this is not enough to save him at that point in time. But God is now going to give Cornelius enough information to get saved. Verse 5. He says, the angel says to Cornelius, now dispatch some men to Joppa, send for a man named Simon, who is also called Peter. He's staying with a certain tanner named Simon, whose house is by the sea. We've already talked about tanner's houses being by the sea because tanning hides required a lot of water and it stunk. So you'd probably be able to find this guy's house, you know, follow your nose. So pretty clear directions. He said, this, this guy I'm looking for goes by two names, Simon or Peter, either one, so just so you know. 
And it's interesting that God didn't tell Cornelius who Peter was. He just said, go get him, right? Send somebody to go get him. He also didn't say what Peter was going to do when he found him. He only told him, dispatch men from Joppa to Joppa for a man named Peter. Here's the principle. And I struggle with this. I'll just tell you right now. Faith acts on incomplete information because God is completely trustworthy. I have no problem with the last half of that sentence. No part. No part. But if the last half is true, then the first part is true too. Correct? Because God is trustworthy, you and I don't have to have complete information. We're not acting based on information. We're acting based on relationship. Right? We know our Heavenly Father loves us, and whatever He asks us to do is in our best interest. Whatever He wants to do, He does out of love. But faith always acts on incomplete instruments. You know, many, many times we want God to tell us everything before we're willing to do anything. God, you've got to give me all the directions from here to the end of my life before I'm willing to do anything. If God gave you directions to the end of the day, you'd just argue with Him. Come on, right? We would. That's what we do. God tells us what we need to know, when we need to know it. And because he's trustworthy, because he proved he's trustworthy on the cross, we can obey him even with incomplete information. Verse 7. And by the way, Cornelius did. And when the angel who was speaking to him had departed, Cornelius summoned two of his servants and a devout soldier of those who were in constant attendance on him. Verse 8. After he explained everything to them, he sent them to Joppa. Now, it's interesting that Cornelius knew how to give orders. He also knew how to obey orders. Do you see any delay in obedience here? How long did it take him to do what the angel told him to do? I, I think he did it right away. I suspect if you saw an angel that you would obey immediately after you changed your pants. Right? <laughs> so Cornelius is obeying the light he's been given immediately. Right? I'm almost certain that Cornelius would prefer to go to Joppa himself. You know, you'd say, whoa, why don't you let me go see this character named Peter? Why do I why do I have to send somebody else? Well, God wanted Peter in a Gentile's house, number one. Now, jo nobody knew that at that point in time. I've looked at this and I've thought, how come the angel just didn't tell Cornelius? Cornelius, buddy, here's what you need to be saved. Da-da-da-da-da-da. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. Save him right there. No, God's plan was he wanted a Jew to bring the gospel to the Gentile because it wasn't just the salvation of Cornelius, it was the unification of the Jews and the Gentiles into one family. Sometimes God doesn't tell you everything. Have you noticed? Most of the time he doesn't tell you everything, right? He says, I'm trustworthy, obey me, and guess what? Cornelius is modeling phenomenal, phenomenal obedience. He's also a very, very good leader. It says that he explains everything to those people who he's communicated his orders to. He doesn't only communicate what they were to do. It says he communicated why they were to do it. Now, that's a good leader. Knowing what is just task-driven, right? Do this. Knowing why you're doing it is purpose-driven. Cornelius tells him why he's doing what he's doing to the extent that he knows it. That's a good leader. Verse 9. And on the next day, as they, these people from Cornelius, were on their way and approaching the city, Peter, now God shifts, he sent an angel and a vision to Cornelius to prepare him. Now we're going to see the Holy Spirit doing the exact same thing in Peter's life. He's going to give Peter a vision. Peter goes up on the rooftop about the sixth hour to pray. The sixth hour is about 12 noon, right? Now this is in Joppa, so it's on the sea coast. So think, uh, you know, he's in Cayucas and he's on a flat roof. There's nice ocean breezes, right? It's nice, cool. 
not Bakersfield in the summer, but at any rate, he's up on the housetop to pray. The houses were flat, the tops, so you could go up and, and, and uh, have a cooling ocean breeze. It was a place to relax. And in this case, it was a place, to, a place to pray, and he was praying at the sixth hour, which means he was praying at a pretty regular time. By the way, having a scheduled time to prayer is a pretty good habit, right? Pretty good habit. If, uh, it's kind of like having a scheduled time to eat. If you don't do it for a few days, you will cease to exist. If you miss prayer enough, your spiritual life will be anemic. As uh, a matter of fact, it may weaken to the point in time where it needs some help, right? Here's the, here's the and this is not a principle, but it's, a, it's, a, it's a, an axiom. If it's important, you will schedule it. If it's important, you will schedule it. If it's not important, you won't schedule it and it will disappear. And you can, I mean, we can take that. If you don't schedule food and water and nutrition and exercise, it disappears. I'm telling you, I exercise six days a week and my body is still disappearing. It's called age, right? I'm looking around. I don't feel so bad here, right? right? <laughs> We're all in this together, right? So prayer is a scheduled discipline for Peter. And we think of prayer as what? Prayer is me talking to God and God listening to me. That's what we think prayer is, right? Say yes. I know that's how most of us practice it. Actually, prayer is equally important, if not far more important, about listening to God. You know, think about it. We don't pray to God to inform him of what our opinion is. Like he already knows that, right? We pray to align ourselves with God's agenda. We pray to express our love and our relationship with him. It's, it's to understand what God wants to do, and we won't know what God wants to do unless we listen to him. And he does have things to tell us. Verse 10. Peter's praying up there, and he becomes hungry. I like this guy. And he's desiring to eat. I like him even more. While they were making preparations, I really like that. Somebody else is doing the cooking. That's really good. He falls into a trance. Yeah, if someone cooked for you, you'd fall into a trance too. And he beheld the sky opened up and a certain object like a great sheet coming down lowered by four corners to the ground. And there were in it all kinds of four-footed creatures, crawling creatures of the earth and birds of the air. So Peter is praying and God is arranging for a very specific vision for Peter to prepare him to bring the gospel to Cornelius in the same way he prepared a vision for Cornelius to receive the gospel at that point in time. So this sheet, right, like a great big tarp, it's almost like there's a rope coming out of heaven and there's a great big tarp and it's all tied up in four corners and you spread out this tarp or this sheet and in it you see multitude of animals, clean and unclean. Remember in Leviticus there was a whole lot of animals the Jews were not supposed to eat, touch, or preferably even look at. Any creepy crawly, right? No, no, you don't eat it. Any birds of prey, raptors, no, no, you don't eat it. Anything that split the hoof and didn't chew the cud like pigs, etc. No, no, you didn't look at it, you didn't eat it, you didn't touch it. When we were in Israel in 2015, what I missed the most was bacon. No bacon. Unbelievable. How can you live life without bacon? Man, ate a lot of fish, but we didn't have any bacon. It's amazing, right? So there's a lot of these animals that are forbidden, and what Peter is looking at, and every good Jew who obeyed the law, he would look in there and go, unclean, filthy, garbage, sewage, toxic, 
yuck. I mean, you just didn't look at and touch what was in there because there was clean animals and unclean animals all mixed together and the unclean always polluted the clean. So for Peter, this was like, you know, really, really bad. Verse 13, a voice out of heaven comes to him and says, arise, Peter, what? Kill and eat. And Peter says, of course, Lord, fire up the barbie. No, that's not what Peter says. Peter says, by no means, Lord, for I have never eaten anything unholy and unclean. By the way, you can say no, or you can say Lord, but you cannot say no, Lord. <laughs> if God is your master, you don't say no. And if you say no, you're saying your master and not him. So no Lord is an oxymoron. Now, this is not the first time Peter's done this. Peter's open foot inserted both feet a number of times with the Lord. And in Peter's, to fairness, right, Peter's stunned. He's stunned. He's being commanded now to do something that his whole life he's been commanded by the law of God not to do. And he's just, it says he's perplexed. He's confused. He doesn't know what to do. Um, but he's not the first one that's been confused by a command of God. Can you imagine how Hosea felt when God told him to marry a prostitute and raise a family with her, right? Hosea 1, 2, the Lord says to Hosea, go take for yourself a wife of harlotry and have children of harlotry for the land commits flagrant harlotry forsaking the Lord, right? So God tells Hosea, why? Hosea, I'm, I'm commanding you to do this because your marriage to this harlot, this prostitute, is a picture of how my bride, Israel, is treating me, her husband. She's committing adultery with all these foreign gods, and I want your marriage to be a living, lifelike picture of what's going on spiritually in these nations at that point in time. By the way, knowing why probably didn't make it any easier. Have you thought about it? It wouldn't make it any easier to say, okay, Lord, you know, why me? Why don't you go pick on some other prophet? You know, have them marry a prostitute. I've been good, right? So it doesn't say Hosea did anything but obey because verse 3 says, so he went and took Gomer, the daughter of Diblam, and she conceived a born a son. Interesting question. What's the hardest thing that God has ever asked you to do? What's the hardest thing that God has ever told? I shouldn't say ask. God doesn't ask. He usually tells. What is the hardest things God ever told you to do? That may be a question to ponder this week. I don't think you could say you had something as hard as Hosea. But I'm sure you have something. Verse 15. And again, a voice came to a second time. What God has cleaned, cleansed, no longer consider unholy. Here's the principle. Be willing for God to change your perspective. I want you to understand very clearly why I put these words in sequence, because I've changed them. The Holy Spirit kind of prompted me. I didn't say be willing to change your perspective. You don't have the capacity to change your perspective the way God wants it. Be willing for God to change your perspective, right? God will change your perspective as long as you're willing. And you say, Lord, help me see this from your eyes. Help me see this tragedy. Help me see this problem. Help me see this person. Help me see this situation from your perspective. That's the only way you'll be able to respond to that situation from God's perspective is you see it with his eyes. 
And the Holy Spirit is teaching Peter, Peter, you're going to have to let go of your perspective and you're going to have to accept my perspective if you're going to accomplish what I want you to do, which is take the gospel of those stinking, filthy Gentiles. Right? We have the same problem because we have perspectives. Right? Say yes. We like our opinions. We really like our opinions. Peter did too. The Lord says, I'm going to change them. God's not just referring to dietary choices here. He's referring to a whole new program of people relating to him. He says, Peter, I no longer have a relationship with people based on law keeping, but based on the blood of my son, Jesus. Peter, adjust your perspective of my point of view. See, Peter at this point in time is a very sincere bigot. God says, I'm going to change that. I have to change that if we're going to accomplish the goal of bringing the entire human family into my family. So God is preparing his messenger, Peter, to carry the good news to Cornelius the Gentile who's an unclean picture. Now, here's a picture of this vision. You can write this down. The clean animals in the sheet of the Jews. The clean animals inside this sheet of the Jews and the unclean animals represent the Gentiles. And the sheet that holds the Jews and Gentiles together, that tarpaulin, tarp, that's the church. The church contains both Jews and Gentiles, both clean and unclean. See, the point is, everyone is equal in God's sight. So everyone ought to be equal in our sight as well. Inside the church, you have Jews and Gentiles. You have clean and unclean. All together, that's God's whole goal, to redeem all of humanity. So he's telling Peter, stop your spiritual bigotry. He's telling us the same thing. Verse 16. Peter's not sure. So just to make sure that God gets the message to him, God does what? Repeats it three times. Just to make sure Peter didn't think, well, man, maybe I was hallucinating. Maybe I'm really hungry, my blood sugar's low, and now I'm really not seeing this thing right, right? So three times, the object's taken up to heaven. So when God repeats something three times, he's making sure you get it. Verse 17. Now, while Peter was greatly perplexed, have you ever been greatly perplexed? Have you ever said, God, what are you doing? Have you ever said, God, I'm not sure you know what you're doing? Yes, you have. I have too. Understand that that's fairly normal for saints. God's ways are higher than our ways. He's going to do things we don't always understand. He's God. And Peter's perplexed. It's not wrong to be perplexed. He doesn't know what the vision means yet. But at that exact same time, the men who had been sent by Cornelius having asked directions to Simon's house, appeared at the gate, and calling out, they were asking whether Simon, who was called Peter, was there. So we all have experiences we don't understand. Maybe some of us are going through those now at that point in time. And sometimes God clarifies things quickly, and sometimes it won't be clear until we get to glory. You're going to live with complexity and perplexity until you get to glory. So God moves pretty quickly here, and you see divine timing everywhere. At the exact instant the vision ends, the messengers from Cornelius just happened to show up. Precise timing, right? And of course, like typical males, they had to ask for directions. Now they were lost, but at least they asked, right? I mean, they asked for directions, right? And I'll bet their presence got a lot of people's attention. You get a hated Roman soldier who's an occupying force in front of your house shouting your name. This would be like the vice squad doing a police raid in your house with the neighbors watching, with their cell phones out, <laughs> recording, right? 
You get the picture? I mean, this is, this is really not a good thing. You know, you got, you got Roman soldiers who everybody hates in front of your house shouting your name. This is a public IRS audit going, I wonder what they did. Hmm, something's going on here, right? They didn't knock at the door, by the way, because you couldn't get to the door. All houses had fences and gates for security, so they were yelling at the gate because they obviously didn't have an intercom system, so they were yelling from the street. Verse 19, Peter is reflecting on his vision. The Holy Spirit speaks to him and says, Behold, there's a couple of guys looking for you. He tells them there's three. Kind of, kind of precise, right? By the way, the Lord is very precise. You will never see God's name associated with approximate. God never does things approximately. He's always precise. Three men are looking for you. Butterize, go downstairs, accompany them without any misgivings. I have sent them myself. So Peter's confused about the vision. The Holy Spirit tells him what to do next. The Holy God doesn't explain the vision yet. He just tells Peter what to do next. And Peter does it. He goes downstairs in verse 21 and says, Behold, I am the one you were looking for. Remember Jesus told the guards that in Gethsemane? What is the reason for which you have come? And they said, By the way, if you've ever written anything and you want to compress your thoughts in the fewest words, verse 22, it would be a fantastic newspaper headline. This is one of the most compressed sentences I've ever read in my whole life. Cornelius, a centurion, a righteous and God-fearing man, well spoken of by the entire nation of the Jews, was finally appointed by a holy angel to send for you to come to his house and hear a message from you. Is that concentrated or what one sentence the whole reason they're here boom right if you're a newspaper editor you always lead with the most important stuff while they're leading so god's connecting the dots with peter cornelius is an unclean gentile roman soldier god just called that unclean gentile roman soldier clean in the vision and now he shows up on his doorstep we know that peter got the vision because in verse 34 jump down to verse 34 of chapter 10 he makes the trip up the 30 miles from Joppa to Caesarea. He's in Cornelius' house. Cornelius has assembled his entire household. I mean, that's faith. He goes, man, I don't know what Peter's going to say, but whatever it is, he's got all his family and friends there. Sight unseen. Would you invite your family and friends to something sight unseen? They might not come, right? They're all there. And Peter walks in, and verse 34, he says, I most certainly understand now that God is not one to show partiality, but in every nation the man who fears him and does what is right is welcome in his sight. Verse 43, he's telling them how to be saved, how to have a relationship with God through Jesus Christ by acknowledging your sin, confessing that sin, accepting Christ's payment of your sin on your behalf, and then you are in a relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Verse 43 says, through the name of Jesus, everyone who believes in him receives forgiveness of sins, right? Verse 44, you want to know what God thought about Peter's message? While Peter was still speaking these words, the Holy Spirit fell upon all those who were listening to the message. Here's the principle. Everyone can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Everyone can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. You don't know who's going to say yes and who's going to say no, so be a faithful messenger, carry the message, and let the Holy Spirit take it from there. Now, we know that their faith in Jesus Christ is a real deal because the Holy Spirit fell on them and they began to speak in tongues exactly like they did in Acts 2. And that was for the benefit of Peter's Jewish friends, right? Peter brought six Jewish friends with him. There were seven of them. 
The Jews had a real hard time buying that the Gentiles could come to faith in Jesus Christ. So God said, I'm going to send the Holy Spirit and they're going to speak in tongues in front of you, just like you did in Acts 2, so you'll know it's me. You'll know that I have put my stamp of approval and my welcoming the Gentiles into the family of God, just like I did with you because you both have the same Holy Spirit, right? That's the proof, positive. So the Gentile, the, these Jewish believers are looking at the Gentiles speaking in tongues and they're going, whoa, they got the same Holy Spirit we did. Same God, same Spirit. I guess God wants them in the family as well, right? That's the whole point. So it was very demonstrable that God's love was not limited to Jews, but was available for the whole world, right? Okay, summary. Do you have enough to work on, you think? I'll give you a couple more. Let me, let me just summarize this. Here's the key idea. All around me, God is preparing people to receive his good news. You and I should be praying that God will show us this week who it is. And sometimes the Lord will work in ways that will astonish you. Sometimes you have an impact for the gospel and you don't even know you do. Sometimes when someone cuts you off in traffic and you wave and smile instead of wave and smile, right? You will, you, God speaks through your behavior, not just your words. So all around me, God is preparing people to receive his good news. Am I prepared to be his messenger? Number two, Cornelius was a God chaser. What am I chasing? I didn't say, am I chasing something? I know you're chasing stuff. Question is, what? Right? Number three, when we obey the truth, we already know God will give us more. So let's work on obedience. Number four, faith always acts on incomplete information because God is completely trustworthy. Right now, every single person in this room has incomplete information. Right? You've got relationships, you've got situations, you've got circumstances, you've got unknown things in your life, and the Lord says, child, trust me. Trust me, trust me. My hands are big enough to carry your burden. My heart is big enough to carry your heartbreak. I demonstrated that at the cross. I love you. Trust me. Number five, be willing to, for God to change your perspective. I didn't say change it into what. That's his job. Be willing to let God change your perspective. And lastly, everyone can be saved through faith in Jesus Christ. Be willing to carry that message.